It's mysterious, very ancient, and nearly 900 million people embrace some form of it. Hinduism. What does the movie Avatar have to do with Hinduism? How do our Hindu friends view God, the universe, and what would they think if you brought up the name of Jesus Christ? Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zukerin. Dr. Zukerin is an expert on world religions as well as a Christian scholar, author, and popular speaker. Recently, Pat spoke to an audience in Hawaii on the fascinating religion of Hinduism and offered analysis from a loving Christian standpoint. You'll hear part two of that presentation today. And please keep in mind that there are powerful resources on topics like this at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism is available on audio, past shows, interviews with leading experts, and Pat's books and articles. So be sure you stop by today online at evidenceandanswers.org. Now here's Pat Zuckerman with part two of Sharing Your Faith with Hindus. There are over 900 million Hindus in the world. The vast majority of them live in India, uh, the country of Nepal, which is right north of India, in between China and India. That is the only country that has declared themselves to be a Hindu nation. Done some great pastors training there. The church in Nepal has been persecuted for many, many years. In fact, the gospel has only been in Nepal for about 40 years. And the churches there are suffering tremendous uh, persecution there and I had the great privilege of going in there and leading one of the first ever pastors conferences in northwest Nepal and hope to go back this year and do one in south, southeastern Nepal some pastors training there Hindu practices such as transcendental meditation and yoga are very popular today not only in Hawaii but throughout the west and there's the presence of Hindu theology very popular in Hollywood Hey, you look at the movies that have come out. It is prevalent with the pantheistic worldviews and a lot of Hindu theology in there. There's over 300 million gods there in India. This is one of the most favored way by the common people of India. For it satisfies the longing for a more emotional, personal kind of religion. It's devoting your life to one particular god. And hopefully that God can extend mercy to you and help you attain a higher life form in the next reincarnation. Here is some of the rituals being performed there as I was walking around the village there in Nepal. These are some of the shrines there that you'll see in the villages or even in some of the houses. And in these shrines, it is believed that the spirit of the God literally dwells in those statues. All right, so if you're going to build a highway or something, you just can't pick up that shrine and move it. The highway's got to go around these shrines because literally the spirit of the God dwells in those statues. And so every day they change the clothes of the gods in those statues there. They present food and, you know, care for their particular idol or their particular God. If they don't, the spirit of the God may leave or it may curse the people with bad luck. And the third way is nana yoga, identity becoming one with the divine through altered consciousness, through things such as yoga or meditation. 
What causes us to stay in that reincarnation cycle is ignorance. Our ignorance consists of the mistaken belief that we are individuals when we are actually one with the divine. Our essence is Brahma. So salvation is achieved through attaining a state of altered consciousness where we realize we are one with Brahma. So you saw that witch doctor there in the clip of Avatar going into some kind of trance. You saw the people as they're connected to, you know, Awa, uh, the, the tree over there. As they're connected, they're chanting, and they're in another altered state of consciousness. What are they trying to do? Become one with the divine. Here is a quote from the Bhagavad Gita there, one of the most popular books of the Upanishads. God is flawless and the same in all. He who finds his happiness within, his joy within, and likewise his light only within, that yogin becomes divine. Further from the Upanishads, when a yogin pronounces the syllable Om, okay, so Om, it reaches the crown of his head. When a yogin is absorbed in the syllable Om, he becomes eternal. He becomes one with Brahman. He wins absorption in Brahman, in the supreme ultimate self. So in Hinduism, salvation is not found outside of yourself, in someone else or something else. Salvation is found by looking within, altering your consciousness and becoming one with the divine. So here we see some big differences between Hinduism and Christianity. In Hinduism, God, God or the ones, an impersonal force, one with the universe. The Bible teaches that God is a personal creator, one who created the... He's not part of the universe. He's not tied into the universe. He rules over the universe. In Hinduism, there are many gods. The Bible teaches there's only one God. Hinduism teaches that man's essence is divine. The Bible teaches man is not divine. He is a creature. He's a sinner in need of a savior. The eternal destiny in Hinduism is reincarnation. The Bible teaches resurrection and final judgment. Pastor Darrell preached on that today. That one day, we will all be resurrected. Some to eternal life, others to judgment. Man's problem in Hinduism, ignorance of his true identity. He is actually Brahman. Man's problem, as the Bible teaches, sin. We are in rebellion against the holy and perfect God. Salvation comes by works because man is ultimately one with Brahman. Man is divine. Therefore, he can earn his release from reincarnation. Bible teaches, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know we have no chance to earn our salvation. It's like trying to swim from Honolulu to uh, Los Angeles, California. There's no way we can even get close. We know that. The only way we can be saved is by receiving God's gift through grace, the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. In Hinduism, there is no payment, no atonement for sin. The bad karma you got, it's stuck with you. Hey, and too bad. All right, you got to work it off in the next reincarnation. There's no way to get a clean slate uh, once you attain bad karma. Okay? You can't appeal to an impersonal force for forgiveness. Right? You can't. You can't appeal to the law of gravity. You can't appeal to fire. You can't appeal to electricity. Right? Only a person can grant forgiveness. And that's what we have, according to the Bible, forgiveness of sins 
comes from a personal God who gave his son Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for our sins. Hmm. Now, witnessing to Hindus, there's some barriers you've got to keep in mind. Hinduism is considered more than a religion, but a part of Indian culture. Okay? So to leave Hinduism, many Hindus believe, is to desert family and culture. Secondly, Hinduism absorbs a variety of religious beliefs. Okay? So often when you share to a Hindu about Jesus Christ, he'll say, thank you, I'll take Jesus too. What else do you want to give me? You know? Oh, the Upanishad, the Bible, I'll take that too. I'll take that with the Upanishads and the Veda. What else do you want to give me? All right? Christianity is seen as a Western or a foreigner's religion. Converting to Christianity is seen as a betrayal. Um, practices such as eating cows is offensive. You know, a good friend of mine, John Chetri, who is my, uh, one of the great evangelists in Nepal who I work with, he said growing up, he remembers nine years old. The teacher in his class asked, are there any Christians here? And he and his brother raised his hand. He said, stand up, stand up. And the whole class, he said, these two people here are Christians. They're bad people here. These are bad people. They eat cows. You know, they do evil things like that. These are bad people, all right? And they're in our class. And, that, and he remembers as a nine-year-old boy going, why am, why am I being singled out like this? What's so evil about what I believe? Okay? So there's a fear of, of retaliation from the gods if you reject them or from the community. They pay a tremendous price for coming to Christ. Well, where do we begin? Where do we begin? Well, turn to Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, we begin to see the gospel going out of Israel. And now Paul is beginning to engage people from a different worldview. Right? Jesus and the apostles, when they first begin preaching, are preaching in Israel. The Jews have the Old Testament law, and they believe in God. But when Paul starts going out into the Greek world, they've got different worldviews. Right? How does Paul engage them now? You look in Acts chapter 17. We, we begin in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, this is the cultural center of Greece, he was greatly distressed seeing, to see that the city was full of idols there. Right? And it says here that uh, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began a dispute with him. Well, here in Acts chapter 17, you see a clash of all three worldviews. Okay? Paul is a theist. The Epicureans are naturalists. Okay? They're what we would call practical atheists. They believe that the goal of life was pleasure. And then you have the Stoics. The Stoics there are what? Pantheists. Okay? They believe in the one. And the goal of every person was to get in tune with the one. All right? So there we see a clash of all three worldviews colliding there in Athens. Now, how does Paul engage these people? How does he start sharing with these people? Does he start quoting Old Testament scriptures to them? They don't know the Old Testament. What does he do? Well, it begins in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. 
From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them in exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. What does Paul do first? He establishes the Christian worldview first. He doesn't start quoting scripture. He establishes the Christian worldview first. And when we're engaging those with different worldviews, that's what you got to do. You got to show that there is a personal God who exists, who created all things. And Paul, you notice, doesn't quote scripture there. He quotes two Greek poets, Epimenides and Aratus. And he says, even your own poets say this. Okay? And so that's what we do here. All right? If we can show we live in a theistic universe, that a personal God exists who created all things, then the worldviews of naturalism and pantheism would be false. And the, therefore, okay, the other religions and philosophies built upon these worldviews will also ultimately be false as well. Okay, if you go up to a pantheist before you prove there's one God who created all things, okay, if you go right into the gospel with a pantheist, with a Hindu or a Buddhist who is a pantheist, or Taoist or New Ager, and you share with them about Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, they'll say, oh, thank you. He's another avatar. I'll take Jesus too. What else do you want to give me? You know, oh, the Bible is the word of God? Well, thank you. I'll add that to my list of holy books too. What else? All right? You want to show that there's one God who created all things. If theism is true, then the worldview of pantheism would be false, and the religion of Hinduism and all other pantheistic religions also collapses. All right? That's why appreciate Calvary Chapel, appreciate Bob and those who teach on the defense of Genesis chapters 1 through 3, that there is a personal God who created all things, right? How do we establish the worldview of theism? I just have a brief, I'm just going to just do a brief, very brief overview. You'll have to take uh, Bob's class or come to the next apologetics conference and learn some of, the, uh, some of these arguments more extensively. First of all, the universe has a beginning. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the universe out of nothing. That's devastating to Hinduism and pantheistic religions. Why? Well, if God is the universe and the universe is God, the universe is eternal. But if you can show the universe has a beginning, then pantheism falls apart. The Big Bang is something that all scientists, vast, vast majority of scientists agree upon now. The universe has a definite beginning. Okay? Many call it the Big Bang. It's nothing Christians have to be afraid of because really... It upholds the Christian worldview. Because there's another law that comes into play. Whatever has a beginning must have a cause. Whatever created the universe is greater than the universe. God's a great candidate there. Number two, the design in the universe. You look throughout the universe, it shows design. The universe runs like a machine. I mean, just look at the human body, the human brain. This four-pound organism here in our head We've not been able to create a computer that can do what the human brain can do. It's an, it's an incredible machine. Hey, my laptop here, if you found it, 
uh, on the beach, you wouldn't assume the wind and the waves and the rocks and the lightning created the laptop. You know, it's ridiculous, right? You say, oh, no, somebody dropped this laptop. Why? Something so complex, showing design, had to have an intelligent designer. How much more the human brain? How much more just to have life on the earth? You know, we're discovering in microbiology that the cell is as complex as a metropolitan city. That's what we're discovering here. Design points to an intelligent designer. It points to a personal being, a person, not a it. Then we have the moral law. Everyone in the world acknowledges a universal moral law. We all know murder is wrong. We all know stealing is wrong. We all know rape is wrong. All cultures acknowledge adultery is wrong. Where does that moral law come from? It can't come from nature. It comes from a personal moral law, moral being who's established a moral law code within all of us. Romans chapter 2. All right, so the fact that the universe has a beginning, the fact that there's design, the fact that there's a moral law shows there's a personal creator. Whoever created this universe is a personal being, not an impersonal force. The universe is not eternal. Therefore, pantheism and all the religions built on that worldview then must be false. Okay? There is a God who created all things. If there's one God, all others must be false. And the God who created this universe is personal, not an impersonal force. Now, when you introduce Jesus, a Hindu may say, well, Jesus is another avatar. No, he's very, very different from the avatars in the Hindu scriptures. How so? Huge difference. Number one, the avatars in the Hindu scriptures are mythical. They're mythical. Hey, Vishnu has about ten avatars, ten manifestations of Vishnu. Sometimes he appears as a fish, sometimes as a boar, sometimes as half lion, half man. And Hindus know these are all mythical stories. They know that. Jesus Christ is different. Why? He's a true historical figure. How do we know that? Well, that's for another presentation. We've got compelling evidence okay, that the Bible here is a historical book. Christ was a historical person who lived a miraculous life, died conquering sin and death, and rose again. There are many incarnations of different avatars, come in the form of animals or beasts. Only one incarnation, one unique Son of God, 100% man, 100% God. Now, when you're dealing with your eternal destiny, do you want to build your foundation on what is myth or what is a real historical person who lived a miraculous life, died, rose again, conquering sin and death? What do you want to build your eternal destiny on? I mean, if you are investing, what would you invest your life savings in? You know, would you invest it in some kind of mutual fund that you don't know if it exists or not, if it's real or not? Or you want to invest it in a proven, quality, mutual fund that will give you good returns. What do you want to invest your life savings on? You want to invest it on the sure thing. What about your eternal destiny? You want to build it on these mythical avatars? Or you want to build it on the real thing, the real person of Jesus Christ who lived a miraculous life died and rose again, a historical figure who we have very accurate historical records on. The avatars taught a way to enlightenment, and they don't know if it's true or not. Hindus don't know. It's just speculation. 
Christ taught resurrection. Christ taught that he was the way and proved it through his miraculous, sinless life, death, and resurrection. The avatars, if you read the Hindu scriptures, they're subject to the laws of karma as well. There's a greater authority above them. But Christ demonstrated he is Lord over all creation. All things in the universe are subject to Jesus Christ. The avatars cannot offer forgiveness of sins. Christ, through his death and resurrection, offers forgiveness of sin and eternal, everlasting life. So our problem is sin, not ignorance. Jesus is a true historical person, the one and only Son of God who died for our sins. And it's through the sacrifice of Christ we can receive forgiveness of sins. See, in Hinduism, that's foreign to Hinduism. Your bad karma cannot be forgiven. Hindus understand sin. It's throughout their literature. What can you do about it? Nothing. Hopefully, you develop good karma, enlightenment, so in your next reincarnation, you come back in a higher form. Jesus not only died for sin, he rose from death, conquering sin and death. It's through the person of Christ you can receive forgiveness of sins. You know, I was uh, sharing with, uh, at the University of Texas, and there were several Hindus that uh, were in the audience, and I was giving an uh, apologetic style of presentation, and when I was done, they opened it up for Q&A time, and one Hindu genius of a man, his, you know, I just call him AJ, because I can't pronounce his name, AJ, three master's degrees, philosophy, computer science, and uh, uh, economics. Brilliant, brilliant Hindu guy. And uh, he stood up and he said, very good presentation. He used science, philosophy. Uh, very good presentation. I did not know that Christianity had any solid evidence like the very good presentation. And um, when we were done, I got to be friends with him. I said, AJ, can we, can we get together? Let's talk about this. He said, sure. So we got together, and we had a series of great dialogues. And first place I began, worldview. I said, AJ, you know the sciences. Universe has a beginning. It's got intelligent. Uh, it's got design. There's a moral law. God must be a personal God. I thought about it for a while, and then... I said, Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, he's not like any other Hindu avatar who are myths. He's a real person who lived a miraculous life, died and rose again. He said, how do you know that? So I went through the evidence for the historical reliability of the Gospels and the death and resurrection of Christ. When I was done, I said, AJ, I challenge you to read the Gospels. Read the Gospel of John, and you'll discover Jesus is unlike any other avatar of the Hindu scriptures. There's something unique about this guy. And he thought about it for a while. I gave him a Bible and he said, I will read it. I'll read it. Well, uh, I heard from him. A couple years later, he went on to another university to do his PhD work. And he said, I read the Gospel of John. And he said, it is true. There's something unique about Jesus Christ. He's, the Bible is unlike the Hindu scriptures. It's based on history. So Christianity is uniquely a historical faith. Christ is uniquely a very unique person who lived a unique life. And that's as far as he went. I know of other Hindu men who, through the love of Christ, brothers witnessed to him, and 
Uh, he didn't receive Christ, but secretly, they gave him a Bible when they parted ways. Secretly, he would go home at night and read the Gospel of John. As he read the Gospel of John, he realized Jesus Christ is unlike any avatar, any god, uh, anything he had read in the Hindu scriptures. And years later, he came to faith in Jesus Christ. You know, Hinduism, and if you go to India, Nepal, other Hindu countries, it's a tough, tough field. It's a tough, tough mission field. And the influence of pantheism and the pantheistic religions are coming here to the West. Okay? Therefore, we have to be prepared to engage the ideas of pantheism. And I'm so grateful for Calvary Chapel. And I wish there were more churches okay, that would equip their people to engage the ideas of the culture and the other religions with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's do so with love and with humility. Well, there is so much more Pat Zucharin has on Hinduism, but we have run out of time today. Keep in mind, you can get this entire series at evidenceandanswers.org as Dr. Zucharin discusses the Hindu worldview. You know, all of us have a worldview, and it's just what it says, a way one views the world. And whether we realize it or not, we all interpret life and meaning through the lens of our worldview. That means we need to be sure our worldview is accurate. And that's one of the main benefits of the resources we have for you at evidenceandanswers.org. An analysis of everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism to help you as you think about your worldview. So download some past radio shows at evidenceandanswers.org. And when you do, you'll help us financially as we seek to stay on this station with good information. And as always, your donations are a tremendous blessing to us. Just click the Donate button at evidenceandanswers.org. Please do so today. And we'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman.